Hi there. I'm your host, Ryan Schaefer, and I'm a firefighter and EMT with the fire department located just outside of Seattle, Washington. Welcome to The Bravest Kind, a podcast featuring behind-the-scenes stories of fearless individuals demonstrating bravery and kindness in their everyday lives. My guest today is Jeff Petty. Jeff is the principal at Highline Big Picture, a school that serves grades 6 through 12 in Highline Public Schools just south of Seattle. Jeff has worked in and around public secondary schools for the past 25 years and founded Highline Big Picture in 2005. Jeff believes our current educational system is not just ineffective, but disequitable and societally harmful on many levels. We discuss a variety of topics, including mental health amongst teenagers, Jeff's leadership style, and how the pandemic has impacted students and teachers alike over the past year. Jeff also gives his take on how schools and system designs can honor the joy of learning while fostering the uniqueness of each person. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Jeff, thank you very much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good, Ryan. Thank you. Excited to chat. Likewise. All right. So I want to get uh, right into it and talk a little bit about uh, so many of the changes that we've seen in this last year due to the pandemic. And I know really a change for educators and school leaders, families, and obviously students. I'm curious, what have you learned in the past year that you plan to use to improve or change your school? A lot. It's been a really crazy year. I think something that I feel like I already knew or that we already prioritize at Big Picture is uh, relationships mm-hmm. and just creating the structures around students and adults that help people stay connected with like, how are you doing yeah. <laughs> and what's going on with you? And I think the, the need for that as a really top priority um, has just been really clear this yeah. year. Um, yeah. And in some ways it was clear at the beginning when we realized we were going to have to do distance learning. I think we, we lost a lot fewer kids because we had the relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't like, uh, Oh, I'm teaching this class with, 30 people I've never met and I can't see them and they don't know me. It was more like, Oh, we know each other. We can check in. But there were also things that I think we tried to do a little too quickly or without enough attention to checking in on people's wellness. So there's been a lot of learning and relearning that we really got to start with. How's our team doing? Um, You know, people feeling okay. Who's having a concern that we need to talk about that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. I want to dive into wellness here in a little bit, but before we get there, I'll just share with our listeners. Uh, I know you because my wife, Bonnie, used to be a teacher uh, at your school when you initially started Big Picture. Uh, was that back in 05 when, yeah. when you started? And at the time, it was just a high school, and I know it's now grown to include a middle school as well. Uh, tell our listeners some of the fundamental differences uh, about the model of big picture just so for those that are listening so they have an idea of how that may differ from more traditional education especially within the secondary system yeah i I think the easiest way to try to get your head around it is to to almost try to forget everything you think you know about Mm -hmm. school Mm -hmm. Um, and the founders the original founders of the first big picture school say that that's what they tried to do is let's forget everything we know about school and think instead about what's learning like and what are the conditions that are usually around really exciting learning. So there aren't classes, there aren't grades, there aren't credits. We don't use teachers by their subject area. And we really, um, some of the core ideas are uh, learning is exciting when you're learning stuff you're interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, So we start with students' interests and we we really try to get to know what do you want to get better at or what do you like to think about? What do you like to do? And then how do we build the skills curriculum around that interest? So if you're into cars, like how can we learn skills that you're going to need later through the lens of that interest? Or maybe you're into architecture, maybe you like animals. And it's not about like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Because who knows that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be a really stressful question, I think. Um, but it's more about what are you interested in and let's start there. Um, and, and what that means for the school is like that, that's a really intimate 
question, I think, or, or I think we often overlook what an intimate question that is. Like, what are you really passionate about? Uh, and it can be really challenging, especially for kids. And there are a lot of these who have come to believe that their interests aren't really relevant to school. Um, and so at the secondary level, some kids will say, I don't, I don't have any interests, hmm. which is really kind of heart crushing. <laughs> well, how do you handle uh, and, that? Let's talk about that for a minute. So a, a kid comes to you and says, I have no interests. As you said, that can be really devastating, crushing to hear that. It's probably not the case in reality. No. For most, I'm guessing. So how exactly. do you start kind of peeling back those layers and getting to the heart of what they actually are passionate and interested in? Well, you hit the nail on the head right there, which is, I think you've just got to not believe it. Um, and trust that everybody has interests yeah. and what you're hearing instead of, I don't have any interests. The facts there are, are not at all that the kid doesn't have interests, but it's more that, um, that they don't trust that I'm sincere in asking mm. the question because they've never experienced a school where the grownups are, are both honestly curious about their interests. And, and this is where the school design part comes in the school is structured in a way to allow that relationship around interests to go somewhere. So it's one thing if I'm, if I'm teaching in a traditional high school, I might be curious about your interests, but if I have no time to follow up on that mm -hmm. conversation and work alongside you to pursue them, then I, I might be sincere in wanting to know, but we can't really act on it. And so we try to build the whole school so that adults can develop close relationships with kids that, last multiple years like bonnie did this over four years worked mm -hmm. with a relatively small group of That's kids right. and that gives you enough time to build that kid's trust that wow this person really does care about my interests and they keep asking and they keep asking and when i when i start to share interests they show up with some next steps that that we could pursue together so i could go deeper with that interest that's mm -hmm. kind of the core idea of our school and then another big part is that um, learning isn't just a school thing. It happens everywhere. And so we try to use the school as a staging area for learning that happens out in the community. So at the high school level, kids are in internships two days a week with adults who do things they're excited about. Um, and that, that just looks all different ways. So if, if I had a student who said, oh, I'm kind of interested in, you know, maybe doing a podcast someday, I might say, Oh, I know a guy, um, you should interview this guy, Ryan, because send him my way. he knows what it's like to start that. And so then, you know, on two days a week, they would be going around talking to people like you, uh, doing things that they're interested in. I know through your firefighting work, you've met with some kids and, and it yeah, starts yeah. with just those conversations to help kids figure out, um, whether that interest is not quite as interesting as they thought yeah. or, it gets them more excited and then they pursue a shadow day and then it goes on from there. I've really uh, seen it up front and personal with the time that uh, Bonnie did spend there uh, working there. And one of the things I really love about the model and you just mentioned it was the fact that the uh, teacher in essence levels up with the student. I, I remember that with Bonnie doing a four year cycle in essence and rather then just after the end of the school year, that was it. And those kids would move on to a new teacher that the teacher would stay with them through. I don't even, I don't even, do you call it freshman, sophomore, junior, senior? Or was it one, 101, 201? We know. use 101, 201, which is an old funny big picture yeah. lingo thing. But, um, but yeah. In essence, right. It's right. 101 being a freshman, 201 being a sophomore and so on. Right. But with that same group. Uh, and I really do think that speaks to the relationship component and the, and the trust uh, that can really be, mm -hmm. uh, created and built upon there between student and teacher. You know, that model's really always spoke to me as well. I, I grew up in a Montessori environment. Uh, my parents uh, mm -hmm. ran a Montessori school that my older sister has now taken over. And when I met Bonnie and she was already working at Big Picture uh, with you and, uh, and the crew there at that time, yeah, it really resonated and reminded me of my beginnings uh, in education. My parents' school only goes up through fifth grade, uh, but still just very much that individual approach, finding what interests people have and passions and really uh, allowing the pursuit 
of that and that there isn't a one size fits all type of deal, but really trying to hone in mm-hmm. uh, specifically to the individual. So yeah, it's all, it's always really, really spoken to my heart. But let's talk here a little bit about the social inequities that exist within the education system. Uh, I'm curious about how those inequities maybe have been exasperated by this pandemic. Yeah. um, A lot of ways. um, And I think a lot of ways that we, we won't fully realize or that we're just starting to um, see, or that will continue to unfold. One of the ways is I think in a, in a more traditional structure where the idea is uh, I'm the teacher and I have some content or some skills and knowledge and you're the student and I'm trying to like mm-hmm. get you to understand these things. Um, like disengagement, especially at the secondary level is um, a big thing. Like the, the data on the number of kids who um, just become increasingly disengaged from school as they get older. And um, you know, when, when asked, What's the first word that comes to mind to describe school? Most people think of boring. Um, like that's a factor in in-person learning. But I think mm-hmm. when kids are remote and may face technology issues or is there a, a place in the home where I can even get online and, and access school, I think the, the likelihood that the kids who are already disengaged are going to be more disengaged just goes way up for all that list of reasons. Like the content is less interesting. Um, There's less of a relationship. The, um, the technology and access issues might be problematic. Uh, And one of the things that's become really clear in the past year is it's not just about like, does the kid have a device, but you get into issues of internet access Mm -hmm. and then issues of, quality of internet access and how many people in the home or in the building are dependent on, um, you know, one signal, you know, maybe you have multiple kids trying to do online learning and people trying to work. Uh, So I think all the things that have been problematic about school are exacerbated. Um, And then some of the other effects, I don't know if you've heard about this term learning loss, there's a lot of conversation now about, oh, the learning loss that's happening. I have a bit, yeah. Uh, you know, again, just speaking about my wife, no longer a uh, classroom teacher, but still, as you know, in the education world, uh, working for a Global yeah. Online Academy. So she she keeps me in the loop uh, with a lot of a lot of hot button topics, uh, specifically within the education system. So yeah, but uh, expand upon that a little bit for everyone listening. Yeah, so I think there's one of the frustrations I have with the way we do school is just sort of the arrogance or the presumptuousness around that. We really know what's going on with kids and learning Mm -hmm. and the idea that, uh, that from the educator perspective, if the kids aren't here with me in my class, they're not learning anything, Um, which is just so fraught with problems. Like one, there's a lot of evidence that, in a lot of those settings, they're not learning much anyway by being in my class if I'm not really engaging with their interests. And then the assumption that kids aren't in a really rich learning environment at home um, or in the communities that they're in when they're not at school. And I think this, this sadly also has a big race component. Like I'm, I'm guessing, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing you and Bonnie are probably not freaking out about, um, Poppy's learning loss that's occurred this year. Um, that's because they're, yeah, that's fair. Um, cause there are probably lots of cool experiences that she's having and that you guys are having as a family. Um, and I think that's true of, of a lot of kids. Um, but one of my big worries is that we're only thinking about learning loss in terms of really easy to measure core academic content. And so there's going to be a lot of um, there's going to be a lot of negative stuff visited on um, families farthest from opportunity because the system is freaked out about their learning loss when in fact they many of them may have not lost a whole lot and may have been having some pretty wonderful experiences. But I'm worried that there's going to be a backlash of of um, testing and mm. um, 
sort of negative approaches to schooling to address what we assume is this huge gap now in this kid's Right. So almost like starting over. So a child, as you mentioned, my daughter, Poppy, are you speaking then to the point? So Poppy's in third grade, like next year is a, a redo, a repeat of, so entering fourth grade, but the assumption will be there was this loss amongst the masses. And so we need to go back to the start. So even though we're in fourth grade, we would be almost back to third grade level. Is that a little right. bit what you're speaking to or... Yeah, on a different, yeah, but I on think instead level. of thinking of it as, uh, yeah, I'm, that's sort of what I'm speaking to, but instead of thinking of it as like, what are the social emotional aspects of being in second grade that yeah. that maybe the kid didn't experience as much of, I, I'm worried that there'll be more of a punitive, um, what's grade level for reading in second grade? And if the kid wasn't here with us, then they yeah. must be behind. And so we're going to like ramp up the testing and the sort of worksheet level, like mm-hmm. the really uninteresting yeah. aspects of learning. So it'll come at the expense of curiosity and sure. interest and, and art and play. Yeah. And it'll land most harshly on um, kids of color. I suspect that, um, this assumption that since you weren't here with us, you're way behind, what are we going to do to, um, to sort of exert our accountability for your learning on you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that probably really just gets down to the whole ethos of what you do. I I imagine. Right. And why you, you explaining the concept of a big picture and finding the passion and relationship based. And you spoke a little bit about the internship program. I mean, I think that, is probably right to the core of your your belief towards education versus you know maybe the traditional classroom model that so many people are accustomed to. I think that captures it pretty well. Like at, at a big picture school, we're we're really about doing as well as we can by the families we work with, but mm-hmm. the network as a whole is really about how do we shift this system at large to be more attentive to the individual kid and what they need and really who they are. Yeah. Like let's, let's do school in a way that um, gets to know you and responds to that rather than forging ahead as if you're just the same as everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Well, I want to get candid about some of the mental uh, wellness issues as a firefighter. That's something that I am up close and personal with on a pretty regular basis. And I do feel as though I've seen an uptick of teenagers specifically really struggling with mental health. I've been on a few suicide calls for teens. Just I was on shift last night. Uh, We went to the scene of a teenager that had taken Xanax laced with fentanyl. Luckily, Mm -hmm. she's going to be okay, but she had a friend, a fellow teen that died of an OD the night before. And so it's something that we're dealing with as a society at large anyway. But again, I believe one more thing that the pandemic has maybe helped kick into overdrive. What can the school do to help support these students, to help support the families of these students, you know, does it extend to the adults and the teachers? I'm just curious here, as a leader of a school, how do you support this wide network when it really comes to mental health? The, the effects on mental health do seem to be profound and kind of ongoing. And, and on the one hand, from my perspective, sort of easy to understand, but also perplexing in really trying to fully understand what it's about. I mean, the isolation part is obvious, um, but it, it seems like everything is taking much, much longer. Uh, and I, I think we're, I know I'm experiencing this personally, and I think I'm seeing it with colleagues and for sure with students that even things that we're excited to do or that we're really interested in or where engagement's relatively high, the there just seems to be a weight on everything mm. that uh, is making things harder. So sort of like trying to like run through water or something that there's just a, a heaviness about things. Um, so I'm trying to respond to that by helping our team prioritize the relationship piece. Like let's, let's realize that it's a really challenging time and acknowledge it and try to do our best to 
keep track of everyone and how they're doing. And if, if we don't see kids for a few days, um, you know, we have a, a system of who recalling or texting. We've done a, quite a few home visits this year to just go by and show up at the house and say, Hey, haven't seen you in a few days. Like, how's it going? And, um, so we're doing our best to just help people feel seen and cared for. Um, and then as a principal, I'm also taking the perspective that my staff need to feel as taken care of as I can help them feel in order to kind of pass that on to the people they're working with. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've, I've had some learning through mistakes, I think, this year in terms of either pushing something a little too fast without getting input or um, not planning as far ahead as I needed to to alleviate people's stress about like how many changes are coming up. So increasingly through the year, I've just been trying to be more thoughtful about how's my team doing and what can I do to um, ease their stress or support their wellness that I might be overlooking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just as you're talking, I, I was thinking and so much of that question I asked you and, and so much focus um, has been with the pandemic, but you've been involved in education and public education for what about 25 years now. Mm-hmm. Have you seen a big shift in the mental wellness of secondary age students in that time? Pandemic aside, uh, would you say the overall health, happiness, engagement, would you say it's similar to when you started in the mid-90s compared to now? Or, or, or have you yeah. noticed a huge change in that realm? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. I feel like I've been in such different settings that it's like, as you're asking that it's hard to track or it's, yeah. I don't feel like I've been in the, in enough of the same space that I would notice it um, as a trend, but a couple things that I, that are almost like maybe competing shifts in that time period. I think since that time when I started, which was like mid to late nineties, we, we have gone a lot harder on accountability like the no child left behind and, and the emphasis on accountability, which I think is really well-intentioned, but really misguided. Like we spend way more energy in the education conversation, I think on accountability than we do on curiosity and cultivating healthy learning space. Like when, when I'm talking with people about the skills of a big picture advisor, Um, which I used to do more in my school coaching work. Like people would say like, what's the training for being an advisor? And I would sometimes say that I thought it was less about technical training. Like it's not that you need to learn some new stuff. It's just that you need to stop thinking like a teacher and think more like a grown up who's interacting with an adolescent Mm -hmm. who just said something about something they're interested in. And I often likened it to like sort of the niece nephew relationship. Mm-hmm. Like if you had a 13 or 14 year old niece or nephew who said, Hey, I'm, I'm kind of interested in filmmaking or I don't know, fill in the blank, whatever yeah. the interest is like, you wouldn't write out a curriculum, um, come up with some tests. Like you, your head would not go into like, okay, how can I hold this kid accountable yeah. to demonstrating evidence of learning? You'd probably just say, huh, well, that's interesting. What do I know about that? Who, who do I know who knows something about that? Like, how can I, help you explore that it would just be this sort of relationship and i think that's what we're trying to do and i think the system at large is hyper hyper focused on accountability and evidence for learning which is sad and i think since i started the emphasis on that has increased which has been bad for kids i think yeah on the other hand there has been a growth in awareness of an interest in programs like big picture like the idea that you need to know kids well or that we should start with their interests and also recognizing the importance of social and emotional learning. So that's been a positive trend. So I don't know where that leaves us as a net yeah. outcome. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, you brought up a lot of things there that I was just thinking about. I mean, it, it almost seems 
uh, it's just counterintuitive uh, the, the way our system is set up. Because like you said, if someone came to you and talked about an interest in something, yeah, it seems as though the route you would go is all, let's explore that a little bit. As you mentioned earlier in our yeah. talk, let's, who do I know that's in that field? How can we do some, some research about this? We're trying to start doing, uh, especially with our daughter, who's a little bit older, uh, Poppy, than our son. You know, she's nine now and she really has an interest in performing, uh, like performing mm-hmm. arts and acting and, and things of that nature. So yeah, we've been talking to her about that. Well, what can we do here? Get you into some, get you into some plays, maybe even watch some YouTube videos of, you know, other kids that have done filmmaking. Uh, she worked on writing a script the other, uh, the other week. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so just exploring, exploring. And it, yeah. it's just, it seems basic as far as the that's how we probably learn as a human species yeah and i think as as grown-ups we're we're usually pretty good at learning Mm -hmm. and so i think that's what we're trying to do is how do we come alongside students and share our learning skills with them so that they can become good learners rather than the old model which was um like i used to be a biology teacher and the idea was like okay i know all this stuff about biology and you guys don't so i'm gonna Mm -hmm. tell it to you Mm -hmm which now has been, I think, made really obsolete by the fact that you can get YouTube or some other resource to tell you all that stuff um, in a very interesting way. So my role needs to not be about just here's the information anymore. Yeah, that's a, you bring up a good point. I've even thought that with schools, you know, so Seattle Public Schools is going to be starting again for elementary age uh, children. Really what I'm looking forward to is more of the social engagement because like you said, in this day and age, I mean, if we're talking about spelling and math and reading, I mean, there are numerous apps and programs and videos on YouTube and what have you that can be used just to, to learn that, you know, that I, I think the benefit mm-hmm. of school learning life skills, learning how to interact with individuals from different backgrounds and, uh, you know, to play well with one another and to, uh, figure out differences mm-hmm. and all of those things. So yeah, it really does almost create this weird conflict of, um, as you're talking about these kind of punitive measures that are put into place of accountability versus probably what we are really needing to learn for life skills and to be set up well for success as we go into adulthood. You had mentioned your work with educators and traits for a good advisor. I'm curious here Mm -hmm. from a student standpoint, what do you think some of the most important traits or characteristics students need to exhibit uh, to be well-rounded and ready for life post-secondary? The easiest way that I sum that up in in thinking about it is agency. Hmm. Um, And I think of agency as having sort of to oversimplify like two components. One, there's sort of the belief or the confidence that you can do something. So, so you sort of have the ownership and the, it's on me to do this. So mm-hmm. I'm going to activate. Um, and then the other piece is sort of the, the skills that come with agency. Like I can get things done or I can, I can find a person if I need to find a person to connect with about something, or I can, uh, read or I can, you know, communicate my ideas. So there's a, there's sort of a skill set around acting on what you want to happen. And then, the first part again is sort of the belief that you matter and that what's important to you is important. And, Mm -hmm. and there's some research on that. I think the research was at the university of Georgia, maybe on what are the, the researcher was trying to understand like, what are the attributes of people who succeed Mm -hmm. in post-secondary endeavors Um, And it wasn't sort of, let's think about what they should be, but it was like, let's actually look at people thriving in these settings and try to understand like, what is it about them that's contributing to that? And this researcher identified eight variables um, and ranked them in order of what seemed to be their, um, their priority or their meaningfulness to people being successful in those settings. And the first one was positive self-concept. The second one is uh, realistic self-appraisal. So having a, a 
being able to have a realistic sense of how are yeah. you doing relative yeah. to what you're trying to do. Um, and I don't remember the order of the other ones, but one of them is the availability of a strong support person. Um, another one is some kind of leadership experience, whether it was uh, a club or even, you know, like a gang, not, not necessarily a formal leadership experience, but yeah. any kind of leadership experience. Um, so I think that's a, um, that list has stood up well. Um, so a lot of colleges and scholarships use those indicators. Um, you don't always see them named explicitly, but um, questions on uh, admissions forms about, um, you know, tell about a time you navigated a difficult situation. Some of those questions are designed to kind of draw out, like, where is this kid in terms of these attributes? Another one is like a preference for long-term goals over short-term ones, mm-hmm. or at least the ability to to kind of defer some short-term stuff to yeah. keep your yeah. eye on something you want to have happen. You talked about one of those being uh, leadership, or at least, as you said, if even if not a formal quote unquote leadership role, but at least having some concept of working in a group or a team or what have you, mm-hmm. how would you describe your leadership style? Um, well, I, I'm partly thinking, how do I want to describe it? Like, what are my <laughs> hopes that it is? I you'd have to ask people that actually work with me how well I'm like walking the talk about this, but, um, well, from experience, like I, I know you do it well. You, you you walk the walk well and talk the talk. So, I mean, I, I I know how I think I view you, but I'm just curious from your from your perspective, um, whether it's a conscious or unconscious decision, whether it's just how you naturally yeah. are, or if it's something you think about. Yeah, I'm just curious. You've you started this school from from scratch. Uh, you've worked with in you know as a consultant with leaders of schools around the country. You're now back to. Uh, being the principal of the school that you started. So this is an area that mm-hmm. uh, you've obviously had a lot of work in and uh, a lot of success with. Yeah, it is an interest. Like I'm, it's something I like to think about a lot. Um, I, I think my leadership approach is partly informed by the idea that I think people do their best work when they have a lot of autonomy and mm-hmm. when they feel really trusted. Um so I'm not a big fan of accountability oriented leadership. Like here's what I need you to do. And I'm going to try to assess whether you're doing it. And um, I think I favor more of an approach that if, if we share some similar ideas about what we hope happens for kids, then I, I want you to feel like I want you on the team because you know, at least as much as I do about this and you're going to be amazing at it. And so I'm trying to create the space for you to do amazing stuff and then I'll be excited about it. (laughs) Um, And, and so trying to create a culture where people feel very trusted um, is part of it. I was even reflecting on like when I worked with big picture, uh, I was trying to figure out like, do I really have any accountability in my job? Um, Mm. And am I actually evaluated or supervised? And technically I was like, I had a supervisor, but um, the outcome of my thinking about that was if I did something really egregious, sure. There would be a a consequence oriented something. Uh, But other than that, it seemed like there really wasn't that conversation and the best work was happening because People were passionate about it and they were collaborating about it. And it, it, it was not being supported by any structure of, you know, I'm your supervisor, I yeah. assess you. Yeah. Um, so I exist in a bunch of that stuff because we're a public school. So I got to do all these observations of people and I have to enter that into this formal evaluation system. Um, and I hope it's okay to say this on some podcast. I told people that I'm going to do that to comply with it, yeah. but everyone's going to do great in that space. And if we're going to have a real feedback conversation, yeah. because I have concerns about your work or because we're arguing about something that's going to happen totally offline. Right. With this other thing, um, because I don't believe that's a effective leadership tool. I think you're, I think you're safe to say that we're, we're in a safe space here. Um, you know, 
Bonnie really speaks highly of you as, as, a, as a person and of your character, but also of your leadership style. And I think that really opened her eyes when she started working at Big Picture, because I think up to that point, you know, she worked outside of the education system for a while and then uh, with her student teaching. And I think probably most of the people in those roles were right, what we think of more traditional, maybe probably more management than leadership, but telling what to do. I think it took a little while for her to get used to that style of not just being told what to do, but being given that autonomy and freedom. And I don't know if jarring is the right word, but just something that she wasn't accustomed to. And then over time, I think just really came to to, to thrive in that uh, setting. And now she herself is uh, part of the leadership team of the organization that she works for. And so I think she tries to exude those mm-hmm. those same philosophies um, in in that role. So I know you've had a big impact uh, on her. I, I don't want to completely speak on my wife's behalf. Feel comfortable saying that and sharing that because we've we've talked a lot about it. So I, I, I do know you've had a, had an impact uh, not only sense. on that way, but how she how she goes about her current position as a leader. Thanks for we, sharing that. She's yeah. certainly had a, a very great impact on me too. Well, it just I was thinking about that work that that Bonnie had such a huge role in with the um, um, the post secondary skills and attributes mm-hmm. that I was I realized I was sort of alluding to it without sharing any yeah. specifics in case people wanted to learn more about it. But the researcher's yeah, name is it. William Set is uh, William Sedlicek, and um, if it, it's called the eight uh, non cognitive variables or non cognitive competencies that be easy to look up if people wanted to learn more about that. Yeah. Can you spell Sedlicek for us? Oh, I'll try. It's S E D L A C E K, I think. It'll, it'll get everyone close, close enough on a Google search that it'll pop up, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm going to go back a ways here uh, prior to your career in education, and you worked as a mountaineering instructor. What did you learn from that experience that you've carried with you into the classroom uh, and your work with students and fellow educators? The trust thing, the leadership mm-hmm. thing, in in curious ways, in different ways. Um, one, I had a, a really influential mentor to me was um, an instructor of outdoor courses that I took as a student, and then he was my first colleague when I started working for Knowles. Mm-hmm. A guy named John Hoff, and he. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm just remembering this one anecdote where another instructor and I were working with him. He was the course leader, and it was the couple of days in town when you're gathering all the stuff to outfit the trip that's going to be out in the mountains for a month. Yeah. And the other instructor, who was somewhat more experienced than I was, I was really new, had run his own courses before. So he knew all that stuff, but John was the course leader. And so this other instructor was sort of anticipating that John would pull us together and kind of tell us what to do. Okay. And so John is, is standing at this sort of desk counter thing, like looking at some piece of paper and, and Dan, the other person sort of is hovering there waiting for some sort of like, Hey guys, this is what we need to do. And John like lets him wait for a while. And then he just looks at him and goes, yes. (laughs) And, and it, it communicated uh, you've done this before. Yeah. You know what needs to happen. Like, yeah. are you like waiting for me to like boss you around yeah, or exactly. something? And it was uh, it was kind of this classic humor based approach John had to um, very very hands off, hmm. high trust leadership. And he did that with students in the field too. Like courses he led, uh, students would tend to be traveling on their own in like really difficult terrain, relatively early in the trip in situations where some instructor groups would never let that happen at all at any part of the trip. I also led a lot of mountaineering trips in the Cascades where you're in, you're traveling in terrain that's dangerous, but it's not like a technical climbing situation. So if I'm like rock climbing with someone and there's a, you know, an anchor and a belay, I, it doesn't matter whether they know whether they're going to fall or not. Like the situation is so safeguarded. Yeah. Um, but, but if you're traversing, you know, like a, a really steep, wet heather slope, uh, 
that has a really bad run out, like you're not going to put in anchors. So you need to be able to turn to the students you're with and say, hey, do you feel comfortable crossing the slope? Um, and they need to understand that that's a really high consequence question. Hmm. Um, and so you need to help them get to the place where they recognize that and can answer the question. And then you need to get to the place where you trust their answer in order to, you know, proceed across the slope. Um, and so I think experiences like that also contributed to that idea of either realizing I needed to, or enjoying situations where you could hand over a lot of trust to students. Yeah. And then the, I think the other thing is, is, um, is not getting overly stressed out. Like in the school situation, usually there's not physical danger in the way that there might be in a, in an outdoor situation. And so I think that helps with kind of staying calm and relaxed. And even though things are stressful, like not, not exuding that stress um, because it's like, well, you know, really we're just at school and it's not like there's a rock that's about to fall on someone. You know, that is huge. That's interesting. You say that that's huge uh, on the fire grounds at a scene of a big Mm -hmm. incident when you have the, First, the first arriving crew, the officer, the first arriving crew, typically will, will, will give a short report to all the incoming units. And if that person can remain calm, despite a chaotic scene, it sets the stage for everyone else, typically for the rest of that event to run fairly smoothly. And I remember there was a lieutenant uh, at our department who retired a couple of years ago and just a, a great guy and a, a great officer and great firefighter. But he told me once he was like, my goal when I'm on the mic, just speaking when he's on the radio and giving a short to dispatch. And again, the incoming units is to sound bored. It's like, you know, I might be, I might be nervous on the mm-hmm. inside, but I try to sound bored when I'm on the radio and it it's, it's true. It works. And it was just as a That's reminder great. to yeah. himself to stay calm. And then that I think exudes to everyone else yeah. to, to remain calm. Yeah, that's, that's good. That, that, that yeah. speaks to me for sure. Uh, Jeff, what does it mean to be brave? I think just being really honest with yourself and others, because that can be sort of terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it can. <laughs> like I was thinking about the. Takes courage. The, <laughs> takes courage to be yeah, honest all the yeah, time. Yeah, of, of, of your, um, of your podcast. And I was thinking about like fearlessness and bravery. And I, I feel like sort of fearless in certain contexts, but that doesn't seem like a bravery thing at all. It just feels mm-hmm. like a situation that I'm really comfortable in. So it, mm-hmm. it's like a weird thing where um, fearlessness doesn't seem to go with bravery, but bravery is about like things that are really scary and being able to sort of sit with them. And for me, that's comes up way more in like, close relationships or, you know, interpersonal dynamics or just trying to be the person I'm trying to be rather than, you know, something that you would think, Oh, what mm-hmm. a brave thing to do. Like mm-hmm. jump off a cliff or run into oh, a yeah. building or, you know, whatever, whatever those things are. Yeah. Like, no, I, I, like I hundred percent agree with you, especially like you said, with those interpersonal relationships and everything else. Yeah. That's where I think uh, we're often most vulnerable. Like you said, it can be, it can be, yeah, there's, it can not easy, but yeah, it can be easier at times to find the the courage, like you said, to go bungee jumping or skydiving or uh, whatever the situation might be. But yeah, just to sit there. Have you seen the, there's a movie out right now. I believe it uh, got an Oscar nomination. It's called The Sound of Metal. Have you heard of that movie? No, I don't think so. Well, I would encourage you to check it out as well as anyone else listening to this right now. It's an Amazon Prime movie. And the the gist of it is a drummer, a musician who loses his hearing. And it's and he's also this character. Oh. He's a former addict, uh, drug addict. And so it's him yes. coping with these. I did read something about this. Okay, yeah. yeah. But one of the really key points of this movie is his ability or really his, his inability to just be comfortable with himself and still and silent. And it's just, Mm. it's an ongoing theme. 
throughout the movie. When you just talk about being brave, being more about not necessarily, yeah, having the guts to go and do some adrenaline junkie, uh, um, you know, moment, but more about that bravery with yourself and those that are close to you. I think that's really what I bring that movie up because I watched it recently. And I think that's really a lot of the heart of that is just being at peace and that being brave enough to be comfortable with oneself in moments of stillness and silence, which is hard to do for a lot of people, myself included. I have a hard time just being still. Yeah. Like that's, that's the stuff that came to mind for me is that like that and like just acknowledging mistakes and, yeah. Mm. Simple stuff that's yep. not simple. Yeah, exactly. Right. So true. <laughs> kind of like the education system, Jeff. All right. Years from now, you're uh, sitting back, you're, you're looking back on your career. You would most like to be remembered as a change agent within the education system for what? I think probably trusting students. Mm. Um, like if, if we could somehow scale that, that would be exciting. How do you scale that? I mean, I think it should be. I don't yeah. I don't see the specific thing keeping it from being scalable in terms of, you know, just more schools approaching things differently. Mm-hmm. I think we've got to get past the uh, the accountability stress and strife, um, which I don't know if if other aspects of the pandemic will help with that. I mean, it used to be that or it seemed to be the case that the idea that people could just work from home, like why do I need to go into the office was thought of as that, that wouldn't work. Like people wouldn't actually do stuff. They would just, you know, watch TV or eat snacks. When I think what we're finding is that most people working remotely who used to go to an office are working like, you know, an hour to two hours more a day. And so it, it seems to have blown out of the water at least in some work settings, the idea that, oh, we can't trust you unless you're here in the cubicle or at the desk. I don't know if that'll have an effect on Mm -hmm. schools, but I feel like we've got to move past this um, obsession with accountability, which may help. I do think it's helping that. uh, Well, another thing that's helping, I think I was talking to someone earlier today about LinkedIn, for some reason, the idea that the traditional pathway is, probably less and less required for whatever thing you want to do. Like I saw some meme quite a while ago that was something like the future doesn't care where you got your skills. Mm. Um, so I think the opportunity to learn things in different ways, different settings, and then let it be known to others. I have this skill. I'll be a useful part of your team. I think that is expanding which might further marginalize the role of schools in telling people it's got to look a certain way all the time. Yeah. So there's hopeful stuff, but I think, um, yeah, if I, if I had to sum it up, it would be like, we got to trust that students do have interests and that they do want to learn and are learning all the time. And if we think about like, how do we partner with them rather than sort of uh, hover over them and, assess all the time, then that'd be going the right direction. Absolutely. Yes, it would. Okay. I've got a few parting shots for you here. I want you to fire off first thing that comes to your mind. All right. Mm -hmm. A book or TV show that you can't stop talking about. I'll, I'll say everybody ought to read underground railroad by Mm. um, Colson Whitehead. Okay. I never have. I should, and I will. I'll add it to my list. A non-living thing you cannot live without. Is coffee living? That's probably living. <laughs> That's a great question. I, I'd just say like um, the mountains. Mm. Uh, being outside, I mean, some of those things are living, but not, you know, the rocks. Yeah, no, I, I understand exactly where you're coming from. Yeah, the great outdoors. I'm heading to Montana here tomorrow, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah, to experience some, uh, some outdoor living. It'll be good. Nice. If you were not working in the education system, you'd be doing what as far as careers? The prison system really angers me a lot too. Like if I were doing something else that was sort of like, (laughs) this sounds, I don't want this to come off wrong, but anger motivated, which I feel like a lot of my (laughs) current work is, it might be that. And if it wasn't that maybe like a field biologist or something Mm. like 
hanging out, staring at animals all day would be nice. That's what I love about you. You talk about like anger motivated and yet you have one of the most calm demeanors of anyone that I've met. I love that juxtaposition. Yeah, it's all anger driven, I think, sadly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, the antithesis of anger, you are happiest when. Oh, wow. That's also a juxtaposition. I'd have to say either like many, many hours into a alone trail run somewhere um, Mm. or uh, hanging out on the couch on a weekend morning with Kate and Pluto uh, drinking coffee and reading an article. Mm. Amen to that. Simple things in life, right? Don't get much better than that. All right. Final question. You have to do something you're scared to do. What's your process of quieting that fear and proceeding anyways? Hmm. One that has actually worked for me is um, imagining that uh, my dearest loved one is sort of coming up and embracing me from behind. Hmm. Um, And like just sort of sitting with that feeling I find has a big calming effect on me. I love that. That, that just gave me a big calming effect. <laughs> I feel like Jeff Petty just came up with a big hug and now I feel calm. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Jeff Petty, thank you very much. Thank you for uh, all the work that you're doing out there um, for all these students and uh, within the education system as a whole. And I appreciate you spending the time speaking with me today. Thanks, Ryan. This has been really, uh, really fun. Appreciate your time. All right, man. Absolutely. I hope to cross paths soon. And that's a wrap on this episode of The Bravest Kind with your host, Ryan Schaefer. Be sure to check out my website, ryanschaefer.com. That's R-Y-A-N-S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R.com for more podcast episodes and information happening in my world. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Bravest Kind podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please take a moment to leave us a rating for the show. We'll be back at it with a new guest next week. Until then, be brave and be kind in your own lives. Bye.